from Zechariah 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on, the, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. This is God's word. Thanks. Thanks, Josh, for our scripture reading. You've probably heard this before, uh, read from the book of John as it's fulfilled. This Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in the book of John, which we're going to get to moments from now. Let me start us with a quote this morning from Henry Nouwen. He says, the Lord is coming, always coming, not just at Christmas, but the Lord is always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize him at any moment of your life. Life is Advent. Life is recognizing the coming of the Lord. According to Henry Nouwen, he's saying that life is Advent. It's not just some part of the calendar year that the, you know, the church begins to gather and say, hey, it's time to start celebrating. It's, it's Christmas is almost here. Let's, let's begin to do this. And then once that season's over, uh, we get to where we're really good at grumbling again and uh, back to our busyness. But Henry Nowing is saying that life itself is Advent. And as I thought about this quote this week, I thought about how living between the already and not yet, that's the difficult part of life. That's the hard part about life. We, you and I, are living in between the already and not yet. The already is, as we've been looking at through all these Old Testament passages, the already is there's a, there's a Messiah King that's coming. It's coming. We've been looking at this for 37 weeks now. This is the 38th week in the 39 books of the Old Testament scriptures that's been telling us there's a Messiah coming. And so for us now, that's already. That's already happened. And then we know from the New Testament that Christ is actually going to come back to this world, restore all things, but that's not yet. And so we find ourselves in this challenging, most difficult, anybody uh, identifying with this reality that we find ourselves in, in between the already and not yet. That's the hard part. You see some of the promises of God come true. You celebrate those promises. You experience some joy in your life. Some sense of peace that God has given you, but not fully. You want more of it. And Christ is enough. Let's make that clear. But we live in the hard part of the already and the not yet. And that's exactly what the prophet Zechariah is addressing. The weary middle. The weary middle. If you were living, and you and I were living in Zechariah's time, we, we probably would have been saying something like, Oh boy, here goes another prophet telling us the king is coming. <laughs> I'm tired of it. I'm tired of hearing about it. Would you just tell us a different story already? We want to see it. We haven't seen it already. You keep talking about it, and now we're going off into exile, and then there's another big bad uh, empire that's going to come and 
overtake that empire, and so now that empire is going to take us off into exile again. We're tired of hearing about it. We feel discouraged. That's what the original audience Zachariah is speaking to felt, the discouraged. I think if we're honest with ourselves, even though it is Advent, and we're beginning to try to tune our hearts with, the, with this new part of the year right now called Advent, and that new reality of God being with us, I think if we're honest, we'd still say that we too feel discouraged. We too feel discouraged. And God is wanting us to not be discouraged. He doesn't shame us for being discouraged. But he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to know, listen, speaking to the original audience, there's something greater coming that you probably wouldn't even believe if I told you. There's something amazing that's going to take place. What you see is not all that there is. There's more to come. I'm not done yet. There's a redeemer. There's a king who's coming. And that's what God is saying to us. This redeemer, King Jesus, not only came, the one in whom we celebrate, but he's coming back. The Lord Christ is coming back. Well, let's uh, get through our narrative summary here before we choose a sample passage from Zechariah. And we keep asking, what time is it? Well, for this prophet, it's 520. 520 B.C., which places this prophet in the Persian period with other prophets like Haggai, uh, Malachi, which will be next week. And you'll remember, uh, just prior to 520, in 539, this Persian empire overtakes the Babylonian empire. God is orchestrating all of human history, and so as that takes place, this Persian ruler, Cyrus the Great, gives permission to the Jewish people to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. That's amazing that that even happened. And that they can go back and begin to rebuild their lives. They can begin to go back and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. And if you want some historical, uh, biblical context here, go back and read the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, the book of Esther. It's beautiful how all this comes together. But Haggai and Zechariah, perhaps, they knew each other. They definitely were in the same time period, but perhaps they grew up together with the chaos of their family, seeing that city that they had just returned to still in ruins. They grew up hearing how they were supposed to return, that they could start rebuilding Jerusalem. Zechariah would also know that long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had promised that exiles, that Israel's exile would only last for seven years. It would feel like eternity, but it would only last for seven years, and that they would come back to their land, and God would begin to restore that land. And this Messiah King would come and join them in that land, and would give peace to not only the land that they could see, but all nations. Well, how do we read Zechariah? Um, one temptation is to read it and think, this has nothing to do with me. <laughs> um, what's, what biblical scholars are trying to help us do in reading Zechariah is to see it as apocalyptic prophecy. And that means... Zechariah, along with all the other prophets, aren't necessarily trying to be fortune tellers, but they're trying to give God's people hope in their present day, in which they find themselves. That's what prophecy is doing. Yes, there's some things that relate to future, both near future for them and far future for them, but the immediacy of it is about hope for their present day. 
And another way to read Zechariah is to remember that as you read the book of Zechariah, is to remember that almost all of the images that you see in the book of Revelation appear in the book of Zechariah. So why do we read Revelation and think, man, this stuff's so weird. It's so ambiguous. What, what does it all mean? We need to familiarize ourselves with the Hebrew Scriptures. We need to familiarize ourselves with the story. All of us need that. And, and we need to continue to do that. So these visions and this poetry, by the way, in this book, all these visions and poetry that we're going to get into here momentarily, there's no linear um, thought process in, in all of what Zechariah is laying out for us. Okay, I'm, I'm just telling you, there's some bizarre images. If you've read it, there's some bizarre images um, and I think it's a lot like our history and our lives. It's quite circuitous. It's quite mysterious. There aren't neat little bins like the container store has bins. And we want everything in these nice little bins. And then we buy labels to put on those things. And all that's wonderful. But history is not like that. So you find these beautiful promises and illusions. Scholars say there's 54 or more passages in Zechariah, echoed in about 67 different places in the New Testament. There is incredible intentionality there by the Holy Spirit, uh, making sure that we don't miss it. <laughs> Let's do a chapter breakdown. Um, chapters 1 through 6, there are these uh, eight nighttime visions, and I'm telling you, they're strange. <laughs> they are bizarre. Um, the last dream you had, some of it made sense, and then other parts you were trying to tell someone about it, and you were like, I, I don't even know what I'm trying to tell you, but it just makes no sense. And I can tell by the way you're frowning at me, like, my dream makes no sense, but this was my dream. So the idea of God communicating uh, through a dream is, is old. It's rooted in the book of Genesis. Dream, think of dreams of Jacob. You can think of the dreams of Joseph and even Pharaoh. God is communicating through those dreams. And the dreams explain current events. Again, that's a key thing to note when looking at Old Testament prophecy. These dreams relate to a current event that they're going through. It's not to predict necessarily some point in the future. Or for me to come to you today and say, I had a dream last night about your life, and let me tell you about it. And here's what it represents. That'd be scary. I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. Um, so let's look at some of these visions real quickly. The first and eighth vision, we said there are eight, and so there's some symmetry here. The first and eighth visions are paired together. There's some similarities between these two. There are four horsemen on patrol, and they're patrolling the world on God's behalf. And they're representing God's attentive looking over the nations, ruling history, watching all events. And these four horsemen, uh, they report that the world is at peace. And if you're reading this, you're thinking, wait, are they at peace? Well, at that time, yes, because God had raised up Persia to conquer Babylon and bring about peace for them. So that's the first and eighth vision. Vision two and seven are very similar. And these are reflections of Israel's past sin that led up to the exile. And so there are these images of horns Remember, we looked at this in a former prophet regarding horns. What did horns represent? It represents empire. It represents someone's power and strength. And um, so it, 
So these horns are symbolizing Assyria and Babylon that has attacked and has scattered Israel. And then the horns are themselves scattered by a group of blacksmiths. And that's what the Persians do. The Persians are coming to overtake the Babylonian Empire. The seventh vision, there's a woman in a basket. And she's a symbol of the centuries of Israel's covenant rebellion. And uh, the woman is carried off to Babylon by other women who carry the basket flying with stork wings. I told you it was, it was a little weird. Very, very interesting. The third and sixth visions are also similar, and they're both about the rebuilding of the new Jerusalem. And a man is measuring a city, and the image is of God's promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. There's someone out there actually measuring it. There's some thought going into it. Like an architect, there's a plan. It's not just all going to end in ruins. So the sixth vision, there's a scroll that's flying around. It's flying around, and the New Jerusalem, um, and it's punishing thieves and liars. So imagine this scroll flying around, and it's just punishing the thieves and the liars. And it symbolizes the New Jerusalem as a place that's purified from sin by the Scriptures. That's what the Scriptures do to us. They purify us. They reveal things to us. The fourth and fifth visions, everybody still hanging with me? Um, some of this may be going over our heads or very blurry. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get some applications going here soon. Uh, the fourth and fifth visions are similar. There are two key leaders among these returned exiles. And they're brought to our attention. Joshua, who's the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David. And in these two uh, visions, Joshua had symbolically been wearing Israel's sin, like these dirty clothes. Um, and then he, Joshua, was given these new clothes and this new turban, which is a symbol of God's grace, God's mercy, giving us new clothing. God's going to clothe us in his righteousness. That's alluding to something that's going to take place in the New Testament. So an angel tells Joshua that if he remains faithful to God, he will lead his people, and Joshua will become the future symbol of this future messianic king. The fifth vision, there are two olive trees that supply oil to this gold lamp. This one's very creative. And the gold lamp is a symbol of God's watchful eye over his people. And the two olive trees symbolize the two anointed leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel. And what God is wanting to say to them through that symbolism there is that success is not going to come to rebuild if it's the result of political maneuvering. Your success is not going to come from there. It's not going to be by military might. Um, rather, these two leaders must be dependent upon the work of the Spirit, which is another famous verse in this passage here, in this book. Not by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Well, chapters, that's all the visions, by the way. That's, that's quite enough. Uh, chapter 7 and 8 is a conclusion of the dreams. People who have been in exile for 70 years, they begin to ask a question. Should we stop grieving? I mean, has all this grieving been for nothing anyway? We're grieving about the injustice. We're wanting there to be some king. And is God's kingdom going to come soon or what? Right back there showing us about how hard life really is. God's promised it, but you're waiting. Um, 
Chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, this is how God answers their question about when is our king coming. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. You want to know when your king is coming? Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But, verse 11 says, they refuse to pay attention stubbornly. They turn their backs and then they cover their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and they wouldn't listen. So once again, Zechariah is telling us about the hard-heartedness that we all have, primarily these people uh, in view. So Zechariah asked, are you going to become the kind of people? God is coming, he's promised that, but are you going to be the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's coming kingdom? Are you? Are you ready for that participation? And chapters 9 through 14 talks of this mosaic, there's this poems, there's more prophecy of the coming Messiah and his kingdom. Chapter 11, the king is symbolized as a shepherd over the flock of Israel. It's beautiful, it's tender. And it raises up the question, will Israel's rejection, because they're going to reject the shepherd, chapter 11 of Zechariah also says, it's wonderful that there's going to be a shepherd. Sad news, they're going to reject the shepherd. And so Zechariah is asking the question, how long will this rejection of their king last? Chapters 12 through 14, and that's the conclusion of the book, chapters 12 through 14 says, no, their rejection of this king and of the shepherd will not last forever. We're glad to hear that, right? It won't last forever. Chapter 12, he, he's, he's going to pour out his, his spirit on them, it says, so that they can repent so that they can begin to grieve their sin and lament about their sin and rebellion. And then chapter 14, the concluding chapter, is where the Messiah, this king, is going to triumph over evil and bring peace over all the nations and restore our known world and cosmos. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. Let's take a sample passage, uh, kind of take a, a breather from, uh, from that very um, quick but um, dense book. A uh, sample passage is what was read for us by Josh a little bit earlier. We've chosen chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And uh, what we want to look at here is how King Jesus brings three gifts to us. By the way, Jesus brings us innumerable gifts but today, from this passage, we want to look at three gifts that Jesus gives you at Christmas, or this Advent season, that's going to help you live between the already and not yet. Because that's where we are. That's where we're at. The first gift is a new way of rising to power. That's a gift that he gives us. And the second gift is a sustainable reason for rejoicing that he gives us. And the third one is a worldwide restoration. Let's take the first one. A new way of rising to power. Again, the context was the city of Jerusalem was partially rebuilt, right? They're returning to it. It's partially rebuilt. They've been given permission. They can go back. They start going back. They start rebuilding the foundation, but then they pause because they get discouraged. We talked about that last week. 
And so the context here is they're on the sidelines of world significance. They feel like they're small. They feel insignificant. Not only their city that's halfway rebuilt, but they themselves are thinking, where is this story going? Who is our champion? Who is our God after all? And so it's easy for these discouraged uh, people to begin to conclude, as chapter 4, verse 10 says of Zechariah, that our day is a day of small things. That's what, that's what they think about themselves. Our day is just a day of small things. We, we don't really amount to much at all. Our city doesn't amount to much at all. Our story is small. I mean, look at verse 9, what he tells them. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. I mean, that part sounds great, right? If you and I were that original context and a prophet is coming to you and looks right at you and says, there's a king that's coming and he's victorious and righteous, that would sound great, right? But look what else verse 9 says. Look, your king is coming to you humble, riding on a donkey. What? We don't like that part. I want, I want more of the triumph and the power and the strength of this king. Please. That's the king that you've thought of, right, God? You're not going to abandon us, right? You know, that, you know how bad the story has gotten, right, God? You're aware, right? Look, your king is coming to you, humble, riding on a donkey. It's not, the, it's, not, it's not what you and I imagine whenever we think about God coming in to, like, take charge uh, maybe a leader that comes to your mind, someone who's like a great leader. Like, where's the confidence? Where's someone coming in with some clear plan? Not riding on a donkey. We want a clear show of power. And Zechariah is reminding his audience, and he's reminding you and me that our king comes not through loud trumpets and military might. It's that their king is going to rise to power through humility. This goes against everything I've ever been taught. The schools I went to, family of origin, culture of origin, um, locker rooms, um, academic settings, you don't win by being humble. You don't rise to power. You don't climb the company ladder. You don't get to where you're going by humility. When was the last time you even heard a talk about humility? Or meekness. Well, can you think of anyone else that rose to power through humility? Someone else that chose the way of humility? I'm thinking of King David. King David, last of eight sons, shepherd boy from Judah, rises to power by being small. That humility that's there. And Isaiah, one of the former prophets we were looking at, speaks of a coming Messiah as the suffering servant. Wow, what humility Christ would take upon himself to be a suffering servant. To not come and demand that people follow him. To not come and shame us and remind us that he's paid for our sins and sort of smear our nose in it and remind us of how costly it was. Or Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small, remember they're discouraged, they feel small, where's the story going? Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over Israel, 
whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So humility is what's being presented to us here today in terms of your application, my application. This is how you rise to power. It's through humility. And you'll need to, I'll need to hear that about a hundred more times before I even begin to give it a chance. Humility is how you and I rise to power. Aristotle said, humility is a flower which does not grow in everyone's garden. Humility is a flower that does not grow in everybody's garden. You may be sitting here thinking, yeah, humility, there's no way it's going to grow in my garden. Humility, that's just not how I roll. That's not my personality. That's not my Myers-Briggs temperament. I can't do that. You don't understand my job. If I were to be humble in there, I would would be bullied, uh, get taken advantage of. You, You just don't understand. And the paradoxical gospel of good news that's being presented to us here through Zechariah and being fulfilled in the New Testament is that it's unleashed inside of you. Humility isn't something that you go out of here today and go try to do. <laughs> I'm going to become the most humble person there is. Well, actually, that's pretty arrogant. A lot of, a lot of uh, irony there. But there's an unleashing of humility inside of you that this King Jesus brings to you. This is a gift. That's how we started this. This point number one here is um, he's giving us a gift of humility. This king, this Messiah doesn't only just come to you, but it's inside of you. It's inside of you. When you and I are lacking humility, it's to be mindful of that. Either a close friend or someone in the Lord points that out to you and says, I wasn't so humble of you. We receive that, and we ask the Lord to to help us tap back into our roots, our true roots, of getting this humility from our Lord. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act, act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the Christian life. That's what Advent really is about. It's a rising to power that Christ did and models and that we too can experience through humility. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 is a great verse to memorize, put to memory and to meditate on this very truth. It says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. This is upside-down thinking. This is gospel thinking. This is counterintuitive for you and for me. But it's a work that Christ himself starts and begins to do inside of us. Another example before we go on to the next point here is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul writing, But he said to me, speaking of Christ, Christ is speaking to him, saying, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power. The very power of Christ is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, 
again I am strong. Do you realize how different this message is? Do you realize that gospel, this gospel message, is, is so radically different and would have been so radically different to first century audience and dare we say to our audience and friends, family members, and even ourselves at times. Second gift Christ is bringing us, King Jesus is bringing us here in Advent is a sustainable reason for rejoicing. Sometimes it's kind of easy to get happy. You see, see a good game, you eat a good meal, you spend some time with a friend, and you sort of get really happy, and you enjoy that time, and then that sort of goes away, that feeling of happiness goes away. Flannery O'Connor says, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, and he shouldn't have done it. He thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't do it, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. I think Flannery O'Connor poetically says it great here. If Christ is who he says he is, and if the Hebrew scriptures are true in pointing towards this King Jesus being the Messiah that's been promised, that is our reason for rejoicing. That is my joy. And if that can't satisfy me or you, you had better, we had better, go get all we can get right now. If this world is all there is. That mimics what uh, a New Testament writer, Paul, is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That if Christ didn't rise from, if Christ uh, wasn't the incarnate God who lived perfectly, then died on the cross, if that isn't truth, then we're all fools. And you should go find your joy um, somewhere else. But I think you and I know that it's not lasting joy. It's not sustainable joy. And so it's easy for these discouraged people, this original context, easy for them to conclude faithful obedience is useless. Why obey? Why, why obey this God? Why follow this Christ? It's all useless. Pragmatically, it makes more sense just to pursue the best life possible right now. Anybody ever struggle with this? Anybody ever struggle with already and they're not yet? The weary part of life? When we get honest with ourselves, what is motivating me to follow Christ? What is motivating me to believe and follow God in this story? This original audience, they're discouraged. You might be prone to think, I'm going to get all I can get right now. And the Bible is saying, if this is all that there is, you should do that. You'd be dumb not to. But since this isn't all there is, you'd be a fool not to give your life over and over and over to the Lordship of Christ for your joy. That's why verse 9, we're looking at the text here, that's why verse 9 says, Rejoice! Shout! In triumph! Not you praising me or I, you or hey, let's find this hero among ourselves, but shout in triumph. There's a king, there's a champion. That's who we're shouting to when we shout. The gospel gives us sustainable reason for rejoicing. It's 
King Jesus that's victorious. It's King Jesus that's righteous. Do you remember weeks ago, earlier in our journey through Scripture, when we were in 2 Samuel, looking at that book, we looked at 2 Samuel and we said that 2 Samuel chapter 7 was this key, one of the key and most important passages in all of Scripture. Basically a promise that God would have a Messiah that's going to come through the heir and line of David. It's amazing how each of the Old Testament books basically just plays off of that same theme. And so this rejoicing takes place because God is God didn't lie. God didn't lie. The second Samuel chapter seven passage came true. It happened. There's reason for your rejoicing. Therefore, original audience, Zechariah's time in 520 BC, wondering if, by the way, they never even saw Christ come. It was 520 years before Christ came. Therefore, original audience, therefore, us modern day, take courage. Have faith in your in-between of the already and not yet. Have faith and take courage because God is with you, especially when it doesn't feel like it. And it all just feels so mysterious. Walk obediently now while you and I confidently know that God is with you and that Christ is going to return. No matter what the news is telling you, no matter what you may feel inside, walk confidently in that. There's a humble confidence that we can have with that. And then persevere in the face of imperial rule. Imperial rule, those horns all around us that are boasting in their own power, in their own position. Because it's God that controls history. God's going to vindicate himself. That's why he's triumphant. God will vindicate his Messiah. That's why the Messiah was triumphant. And God will vindicate you, his people. So Zechariah's prophecy, by the way, is fulfilled in the New Testament. Let's point out some of those talks about the coming Messiah as king. Zechariah 9.9, we're looking at it right now. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Where is that found? John. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. Let's read it. The next day, the great crowd had come for the festival, and they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it was written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. I don't know what it does for you to know that this prophecy is fulfilled I hope it bolsters your faith and as you and I are living in this faith and thinking about our faith and maybe even sharing our faith with someone else that God is truthful. You can believe, you can trust in this God. The next way it's fulfilled is it says that the Messiah is going to be pierced. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We like that he's coming, but he's going to be pierced? Yeah, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. God said, I will pour out a spirit of grace 
and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a son who has died. A clear, huge arrow pointing towards the New Testament fulfilled in John chapter 19 which says, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, yeah, Jesus is on a cross, he's dead now, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And then a bystander said, this happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And then he quotes, they will look on the one in whom they have pierced beautiful. Here's another one. Messiah as shepherd. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. The man who is my partner, says the Lord of heaven's armies, strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Matthew chapter 26 verse 31 is where that one is fulfilled. On the way, Jesus told them, Tonight all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, He's quoting Zechariah. God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus thought incredibly highly of Zechariah's prophecy. He knew that he himself was fulfilling it. Or think of Zechariah chapter 3 where it says there that I will remove their iniquity in a single day. When is the single day that sin is once and for all dealt with? When is that single day that Zechariah is talking about? Clear, clearly pointing to the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. Where Joshua, there in chapter 3, he's been symbolically wearing, we referred to this earlier in the sermon, but he's, he's been symbolically wearing Israel's sin in the form of these dirty clothes. And you'll remember Isaiah also talking about these dirty and filthy clothes that we have Speaking of our sin, Isaiah chapter 64 says, We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, even our most righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags, Isaiah says. And then Isaiah goes on to prophesy, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. Not because my most righteous deeds are rags, there's no reason to rejoice. But I'm going to rejoice greatly in the Lord, and my soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with new garments of salvation. This is huge gospel language. God is going to reclothe you and I, and all those who would admit to be in need of reclothing. He's going to clothe me with new garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. New Testament, this is what that sounds like. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is a wonderful verse to put to memory if you're ever even wanting a good summary of what the gospel means, how to reflect on it, how to share it, how to continually receive the gospel. This is what it says. For our sake, God made him, it's referring to Jesus, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Please go back and reflect on that. Please go back and see how much of a new identity that gives us. 
Or Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Here's another one. And being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Your righteousness is not in what you and I can produce this week. That's not the reason of my rejoicing. That's not why I can get all happy and excited. It's, look how much I obeyed God this week. And the next week I'm totally in the dumps and depressed because I'm feeling kind of far away from God. But rather someone, namely Christ, who's lived a perfect life on my behalf and I can tap into that and receive that. The third gift, last gift that we're going to look at today is a, a promise, a promise of worldwide restoration. Worldwide restoration. Leslie Newbegin says, Here, during Advent, we touch upon the other side. We do not merely, like Old Testament prophets, speak about an unknown day in the future. We speak about a known person who has already come, in whom Advent has begun. We speak about a new world whose powers are already at work in our own experience. What we look forward to, therefore, is not a wholly unknown event. It is the completion of what has already been begun in the coming of Jesus. It is the victory of the powers which are already at work in this world, grappling with the powers of evil in this world. And it is the public manifestation and acknowledgement of the reign of Jesus at the right hand of God, which is now hidden, an object of faith, but not yet of sight. There we go again. The already and the not yet the difficult, the chafing life that we live in the in-between. So not just a king who is humbly riding on a donkey. That was good news. It's good to know that Jesus is coming humbly. But a king who can promise worldwide restoration. Now you're bringing something. Now now I'm understanding a little bit more about this rejoicing. Verse 10 says, I will, God is speaking, I will remove the battle chariots and the war horses. He's promising worldwide peace. It's coming. You and I don't know it right now. We're not experiencing it. Verse 10 also says, I will destroy all the weapons used in battle. He's depicting a new Jerusalem, a new city, where all the nations are going to gather. There's going to be peace that's here. Justice is finally going to confront and defeat evil among the nations. Don't you want that? Don't you and I long for that? Verse 10 says, your king will bring peace to the nations. And the final chapter here, as we conclude our time in the word today, the final chapter, verse, well, just look at the whole chapter. There's so much in this last chapter. This concluding chapter ends with the new Jerusalem as the gathering point for all nations. And this city becomes a garden. It becomes like a renewed garden. The city becomes a renewed garden of Eden. Yeah, go back and look at it. Zechariah chapter 14 is there. Connects with some things that are taking place in Revelation where it talks about a a new city and a new Jerusalem and a new heavens and a new earth. And in Zechariah 14, there's this river of living water that's flowing out of the temple. Again, that's symbolism for God's presence. Water is flowing out of that temple and it's going to bring healing to all creation. 
healing to all creation. So living between the already and the not yet, is that even possible? Life is Advent. Life is Advent. Let's pray right here. Lord, as we close our time of studying uh, your word right now, we just reminded that Zechariah is inviting us to look above the chaos and hope. Look beyond the, the turmoil and the difficulty of life that any of us are going through right now. To look beyond that in hope and in faith about your first coming, Lord Christ, but also your second coming. And that is truly what's going to motivate faithfulness in this present time. Lord, hear our prayers right now. Hear our pain. Hear our difficulty. Give us hope. And remind us of these gifts that you bring to us, Lord Christ, during this season. And we pray in your name, Lord Christ. Amen.